Turn with me again for a Bible reading to the New Testament one in Second Corinthians chapter five. <clears throat> and we're going to look at these closing words again of verse nineteen to twenty one. We've entitled it God's Request to be Reconciled to Lost Mankind. I could understand that if it was man's request to be reconciled to God, but it's not put like that. It's God's request to be reconciled. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. We've been thinking of these special requests in prayer today already. I want you to continue to remember our sister Joy Gillespie settling back into Nepal. Uh, the Grace Academy in Lahore in Pakistan, Kenya, the announcement of these pending elections. I want you to remember Uganda, our brother Dave McCauley and his wife Rachel and family are out there at the present time whilst our sister Noreen is at home doing deputation work and they have planned uh, two vacation Bible schools out there in Uganda at this present time in, in areas outside of the school. So they're, they're pretty busy. And pray the Lord will be with them and will watch over them. So let's please pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee tonight for the opportunity to sing these great old hymns of Zion. We thank thee we've been enabled to lift our voices unitedly as a congregation in praise of him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own precious blood. And it is Christ and Christ alone that we want to be praised and honoured and magnified this evening. Grant the help of thy spirit as we gather around the word of God. Send the Holy Spirit, Lord, in plentiful fashion. Pour out upon us, Lord, uh, thy spirit this evening. And lead us to Christ the crucified. And we pray that both the heart of saint and the unsaved alike might be fixed on him. We come before thee and I ask just for the help of the Lord in proclaiming the word. Oh, help us, Lord, this evening just to speak well for thee and to speak well of thee. I remember these special prayer requests. I thank thee for taking our sister, Miss Gillespie, back in safety to Nepal. We return thee thanks for journeying mercies. And I pray that you'll bless her. Bless, we pray of thee, the Free Presbyterian Church in Nepal. I remember those in it tonight who mourn. I think of that dear Pastor Ramesh who mourns the passing of his wife. Lord, be with them. Pour out of thy grace and spirit upon them. And we pray that thou wilt succor your people and comfort them. Remember, we ask of thee, uh, the, the folk in Pakistan, battling against great odds in that Islamic state. Lord, protect them. Help them as they share the gospel. Bless those dear boys and girls as they go to school every day in Grace Academy. You know all about the cramped conditions and you know all about the difficulties associated with it. But hedge them round about and bless them, I do ask of thee. Lord, I ask that thou wilt remember too the announcement of these pending elections in Kenya. O oh Lord, I pray as the results come through this week that you will keep the country stable and in peace. And you'll bless your church in Kenya. Thank you for the many who know and love thee as their saviour in that land. And I pray you'll watch over them and bless them. Remember Nasalu and the Emmanuel School in Uganda. I thank the Lord for visiting it in recent days. We 
We lift up our hearts to thee in thanksgiving for young and old who have sought the Lord and called upon thy name. We rejoice to know that God is saving souls and bringing sinners to himself. And I pray that you'll bless our brother David McCauley and his wife Rachel as they would take these vacation Bible schools and outreaches from the school itself. Bless them, I ask of thee, protect them, and Lord, use them. And bless all who labor with them. Uh, I thank thee for Master Thomas, for Master Israel, for, for Master Ronald, these dear men. And I pray, Lord, that thy hand would abide upon them and that God would strengthen them in their labors for thee. So hear us now, we are before thee. And I pray as we wait on that you'll speak to us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 uh, to verse 21. <clears throat> Calvinists and those who uphold the theology of the Reformed Confessions, they're often accused by Arminian preachers of, of not preaching a full gospel. So as a Calvinist and as a minister of the gospel, I always take great delight in emphasizing how our Reformed Presbyterian forefathers faithfully and fully preach the gospel of redeeming grace. A few weeks ago we considered the first gospel warrant that is set out in that uh, appendice at the back of our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, in the practical use of saving knowledge. I commend uh, its study to you this evening. But the usage of the word warrant, uh, it signifies the justification or the grounds for sinners to believe. This is heaven's authorization for sinners to believe the gospel. God sends out a warrant. It's a search warrant. It's an arrest warrant. And he sends out that warrant so that sinners would be seized and caught and brought in by the gospel. We looked at the, the importance of it. It is issued by the judge of all men, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is executed by the ministers of the gospel. This is not done by the PSNI. They wouldn't know anything about it or any other police force. This is done by the ambassadors of Christ. And what authority uh, he has given to all of his ambassadors because we carry the seal and we carry the signature of the supreme judge himself. And he has given to me that seal. That signature tonight. To deliver to the congregation here. And all along. Now that astounds me. And that amazes me. And that should emphasize to you. The importance of gathering to hear. The preaching of the gospel. We looked at the first proof text. Which is in our confession. In Isaiah 55 verse 6 and 7. What a wonderful passage of scripture that is. I love Isaiah. I love those chapters in Isaiah 40 to 60 and there in the middle of it, chapter 55, we have this hearty invitation. That's how it's described by these. Sometimes we, we look at them very dear, sincere men of God of a bygone generation. We look at the caricature of them, but it's described as hearty. It's described as warm. It's described as sincere. This hearty invitation uh, to accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a second warrant which has been issued by God to arrest sinners. 
And that is found in our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. And this is an earnest request. This is the phraseology of the confession, not mine. It's an earnest request which God himself has made for sinners to be reconciled to him in Christ. The gospel message is a message of reconciliation. We hear much today about reconciliation in our land and in our world. But it's all superficial because it deals with the secondary cause rather than the primary cause. And the primary interest uh, that God has in reconciliation is Godward. And once you're reconciled to God, then you can be reconciled to man. You'll never be reconciled to man until you are properly reconciled to God. So regardless of whom we speak, the, the message is always the same. Just simply put, as Paul put as is put in our lovely authorised version, be ye, plural, be ye, reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Here's a summary of the gospel just in a few verses. The Father is in view in these verses because in Christ he reconciles lost sinners to himself. The work of the Son is highlighted in that he was made sin for us. The experience of salvation is worked out in the verses because we read that believing sinners are made. We weren't, we weren't born like that, but we are made to be the righteousness of God in Christ. So it's amazing to me again that God has put this warrant in my hand to execute in this meeting tonight that he has a request to the congregation that's gathered into this meeting house on the Money Darrell Road. And he says collectively to the congregation that he wants you to be reconciled to him. It couldn't be any more important. Oh, the, the mystery of it all. Uh, God would send such a request to our hearts. He wants you to be reconciled to him. Maybe there's others you need to be reconciled to. Maybe there are people that you need to be reconciled to. But I want to put it like this to you. First of all, this evening, you need to be reconciled first of all to God before you think about reconciliation with others. So there's some truths that we're going to consider uh, with you from the verse this evening. The first truth is that man's kind friendship with God by creation it was lost. It was ruined. This is presupposed in the usage of the word reconciliation. Four times over it's used from verse 18. You cannot miss that, that emphasis that's in the passage. According to the dictionary, reconciliation is a process of making two people or two groups of people friendly again after they have uh, broken their friendship or they've fought or they've been kept apart. Uh, what is it that reconciles them and brings them together again? We'll go back to Genesis chapter 3 when God created Adam and Eve. What wonderful friendship they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. Friendship. It's not a strong enough word even to describe the relationship that God had with his creation. Adam, Eve, he was their creator. He was their designer. They just didn't happen, but they were specially designed. They had DNA that nobody else ever had. They were designed especially by God. He was their creator. He was their suitor. 
because God brought to Eve his partner for the journey of life. He provided all of their needs. It was all provided in paradise. All Adam had to do was to keep it and to dress it. He gave them knowledge. He gave them knowledge above the other creation. He gave them dominion over the rest of creation. And that knowledge and that dominion the human race has enjoyed ever since. He did much more than that because the Bible tells us that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. He made Adam and Eve different from everybody else that was ever made or part of the creation beforehand because he made them eternal souls. They were not just individuals, physical individuals, but they were souls for all of God's eternity. And he gave to those souls, those two souls, who were the head, the federal heads of the human race, he gave to them his law and he gave to them his covenant. We read about that law and covenant in Genesis 2, 16, 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, now if somebody gives you a command, that's law, isn't it? Some people say there was no law in Genesis chapter 2. I don't know how they read the Bible. Of course there was a law in Genesis chapter 2 because God commanded them. If you get a command, it's a law. It's something to obey. So God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So this was the the command that God gave to him, the law that God gave to him, and he, he warned them of the consequences of breaking the law, but he also told them of the blessing of keeping the law. This is what's known as the covenant of works that God entered into with our federal head, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. Obey and live, disobey and die. And God incarnate came to visit them. It's good when friends come to visit you. A home that has no visitors is a friendless home indeed. So God came to visit the home that he'd created for them. And we, we read in Genesis 3 and verse 8 that he came to them in the cool of the evening. And he walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. Can you visualize the scene? Adam and Eve in this perfect place, in this perfect environment, in fellowship and friendship with Almighty God. What a blessing that must have been. When you and I sing of friendship, the best of friendship is tainted because it's friendship that is in this broken, sinful world. But the friendship that Adam and Eve had with Almighty God uh, in paradise prior to the fall, it was perfect. Perfect friends. But it didn't last. And tragically, mankind lost that privileged position. Genesis chapter 3, from whence we have read, it brings us to that catastrophic event that destroyed the friendship between God and his creation, between God and mankind. And not only destroyed the friendship, but where friendship was, now there was enmity instead. Because in Genesis 3, we're going to summarize it, we read of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and how they blatantly, deliberately broke the law of God. They were covenant breakers. And they sinned and fell in that first transgression. They listened, as we learned this morning once again, to the subtlety of Satan and to the, the seducing ways of Satan. 
and they took of the forbidden fruit and they ate of it. Now, of course, when they took of that fruit and ate of it, they weren't thinking of the consequences, but God had already told them of the consequences. In the day that they ate thereof, they would die. But the full consequences are outworked in our portion that we read in Genesis 3, verse 15 to verse 19. We, we read how that friendship and fellowship with God was broken forever. Instead of friendship, there would be enmity, sorrow. I'm just picking out the main words from that little passage. There would be enmity, there would be sorrow, there would be curse, there would be toil, there would be death, there would be judgment. Adam never heard any of those things before. He'd been warned of them, but he'd never lived to see the reality of them. Now he was living in the reality of them, and all of his race ever since has lived in the experience of them. We live in a world of sorrow. We live in a world that's laboring under the curse. We know the toil and death and judgment that comes with it. The primary root that's used for enmity in verse 15 is the root word for hate. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Friendship was gone. And instead man's sinful heart was full of hate. Hate for God. Passively, it just means that God was now odious. Odious in the heart and mind and in the thinking of, of man. The active meaning of the word means hostility. So just from thinking wrong to acting wrong, the two things quickly went together. And from the fall in the Garden of Eden and from the Gate of Eden, mankind has lived ever since in rebellion toward God's law and with hate in his heart toward the things of God. That's the testimony of both the Old and the New Testament. What does God himself say? In the re-giving of the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 9, God says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. It's an awful thing we teach our children uh, when children say, I hate him. We, we say, it's an awful thing when a child says, I hate somebody because maybe they've been wronged or, or, or bullied or, or, or whatever the situation is. I hate them. But that's what God says of mankind. They hate me. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus spoke of love so often, time and time again. But he spoke of the love of God toward mankind. And what did he say about mankind? He said, the word, when he's speaking to the disciples, John 7, 7, he said, the world cannot hate you, but me. It hateth. It hateth. The world hated Christ. Does the world love Christ today? No, the world still hates Christ. John 15, 18. It said, even if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Those are all strong terms. You don't expect to find them couched in those lovely words of the gospel. The consequences are, are outlined for us. They were all put together very neatly, weren't in the shorter catechism. What did... A man lose in his communion with God. First, uh, question 19. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. 
lost communion with God. The friendship was broken. They stopped speaking. In fact, God put mankind out. He was put out. Imagine somebody coming to your home and the breach that is made in the home, whatever the situation is, is so severe that you literally take them out of your home and you put them outside the home. That's what happened. It says they're not only lost communion with God, but are under his wrath and curse and made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. Now there are many today and they sit in evangelical pews as you're sitting in and for the preacher to say to them that you hate God it it just seems a preposterous statement uh, to make to them. I'm in church, am I not? I'm here listening to the preaching of the gospel. But we are born, we are born men and women with that broken, fallen, sinful nature. And you do not have to scratch the surface too far or too deep to find that enmity. That enmity in the carnal soul against Almighty God. You can have good friends on the journey. And you know, the blessings of good friends are the blessings of God and common grace to all of us. But if you can't say God is your friend. If you can't speak of the friendship of Christ. You can live with many friends. But this is one friend you can't die without. You can't die without the friendship of Jesus. Because if you do, you'll be lost for all of God's great eternity. And suffer the pains of hell forever. There's a second thought here. And let's consider together uh, the work of God in restoring this friendship. Man broke the friendship, but he didn't do anything to restore it. Not the amazing thing. Man broke it, but God had to restore it. Reconciliation was something that was initiated by God. Remember, it was God who came searching for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In the-